of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church, the Christians in Colossae. It's a very challenging passage. It's really about radically different living. The, the, the theme verse for this section, you can uh, pick up right at the end there, verse 17. Just cast your eyes down on it. Let's look at that, that verse there. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How's that, How's that for a motto for the year? How's that for a motto for the rest of your life? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, living our lives as a representative for Jesus in this world, living as his ambassadors in this world. Uh, It's that, that time of year where all of us are meeting new people, maybe you yourself as a new people, and you're going to meet lots of people. What are, the, what are the things as we come to meet people that we, we first share about ourselves? There's, there's the obvious, uh, give your name. You know, I'm Sean, good to meet you. And then they ask what you do. Um, you tell them what you're doing, whether you're working or studying. Uh, maybe you, you say where you're from, whether it's from Stellenbosch or KZN or... I think everything else is Joburg, isn't it? Um, maybe you share a little bit about your hobbies, your likes, your dis- dislikes. You share about a, a little bit about who you are, a bit of your identity. Uh, identity matters. It shapes who we are. It shapes the way we think about ourselves. It shapes the way we behave, the things that we're passionate about. It affects the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand one another, and even the way we understand the world. In Colossians, so far, Paul has painted this amazing picture of how great Jesus is and how great it is that we have a relationship with him. The massive privilege of being in a relationship with Jesus. In the final two chapters, Paul moves to focus on How should that be working out in our lives? How should that transform the way we live? And now that we see what God has done in us, how he's transformed us, how should we be living? What is the right way to live as his people? Now, it's very important that we get the order right here. God has already done the work in us. It's not do good works in order to achieve good merits with God. But God has done work in us to bring us into relationship with Jesus. And therefore, flowing out from that, we are to live transformed lives. Earlier in the letter, um, I think chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, pretty much sums up uh, the work God has done in us. Listen to these words. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You see there, our salvation, coming into relationship with God, that is all God's doing in Jesus. Here in chapters 3 and 4, Paul shows us how we are to live in light of what God has done for us. And here we see there's 
there's two things. Firstly, rooted in that identity, then it flows out both how we think and our, our passions, but then also in our actions. So firstly, let's um, have a look at the, the motivation that drives this, our identity, who we are, and then secondly, who we will be. Uh, look at it, how Paul describes the follower of Jesus in verse 1. Paul says, since, you, since then you have been raised with Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been raised with Christ. You have new life in him. And in verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's, that's the two sides to the, the, the one coin. You have been raised with Christ and you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Now, who here would describe themselves as having died? Yeah, some of you look like you might have died, but I think that's probably because of the heat of the day. Um, but what Paul is saying here is that being in Christ, we have gone through death. We've gone through death with him, dead to the ways of the world. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the judgment that comes because of sin. Saying that we died with Christ means that the punishment that we deserve because of our sin, which is death, Christ has taken on himself as he died on the cross for us. And then as he was raised from the dead, we too were raised with him and were given this new life. Jesus conquered death and he brought forgiveness for us. This shows that the punishment of sin has been dealt with and that there is a new promise of new life with Christ. We, if we are followers of Jesus, have been made alive with Christ. Now, when you go about thinking about yourself and your identity, how, how much does that come to mind? What is it that, that you think of? Do you think of yourself as dead to sin? dead to the ways of the world, dead to the judgment that is to come? Do you think of yourself as having a new identity in Christ? If you are a Christian, then you have a new identity. That, that is the most funda element, fundamental element of who you are. You have died and you have been raised with Christ. You've been given new life. Everything else is secondary. Our hobbies, our, our likes, our dislikes, our occupation, our studies, our ethnicity, all these things are secondary compared to our identity in Christ, and they should pale in comparison as we think about who we are. Rather than seeing our sin, God sees us as part of his family, and this is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is who we are. That's the first motivation for the things that Paul's going to tell us. And the second um, is that when he comes back, all Christians will share in God's glory. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The greatest event in the future of this world is the return of Jesus. It's, it's not you finally getting your degree. It's not marrying the guy or girl of your dreams. The greatest event 
in the future of this world is the return of the Lord Jesus. And that is the best start to your eternal future. A future where there will be no sin. It's a good thing to ponder. Imagine a world with no sin. It's a future where we are free from all the effects of sin. All the effects of living in a broken world stained by sin. No pain, no suffering, no death, no disaster, no fear, no broken relationships. This is the future that's held up for us. When Jesus returns, we will share in his glory. That is part of our identity as being in Christ. So how should this affect the way we live? How should this affect the way you think about the year ahead, your studies, your life? Well, the first two things that Paul highlights comes in the first couple of verses. Have a look at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things above. And then secondly, verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We are to set our hearts and minds on heavenly things, on things above where Christ is. Now, um, I think it's important that Paul highlights both hearts and minds. They're two things, different things, but closely related. We are to set our hearts and minds on heavenly things. And our heart here is our passions, our desires, the things we want. Our minds are the things we think about, the things we understand, our intellect. We are to be setting both our hearts and minds on things above. Well, they're two connected things, but they're two different things. But they feed off each other. As we set our hearts on something, we'll want to know more about that thing. As we set our minds on something, our hearts will long for it and love it more. Just want to um, spend a, a moment just thinking about each of these. Firstly, our hearts. What are the things that you're passionate about in life? What are the things that will get you out of bed early on a Saturday morning? If you're anything like me, there's very few things that will get you out of bed early. But what are the things you really want to achieve in life that at the end of your life, looking back, you will think, I've had a good life? So to be popular, to be liked by others, maybe to be loved by someone special. Maybe you want to do really well in life, make a difference in this world, be really successful in your career. Maybe you just want to have a lot of really cool experiences. Uh, maybe you're a bit of an adrenaline junkie and that's your thing. But these are our passions and our desires. These are the things that drive us, that motivate us to keep going. But how do these passions, these desires, which many of them are not bad things, how do they compare to our passion, our desire for heavenly things, for God's eternal glory? for eternity with God in his perfect paradise, for our growth in our relationship with God, for Christ's rightful rule to be seen in this world, for more people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, 
we must desire these things far more than we, what we desire the things of this world. The things of this world are temporary. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But the things of heaven last for eternity. So we must be setting our hearts and our minds on the things that God wants, what God desires. And those things must drive us and shape us in this world. And secondly, our minds. What are the things that we are filling our minds with? I guess for many of us, it's series, uh, whether it's Netflix or Showmax. Many of you are going to be studying, going to be spending a lot of time in your books, your university work. Maybe you really want to do exceptionally well and get the Dean's Award at university. Maybe our minds are being filled with our hobbies or the, the, the things we're interested in, whether it's sports or, or reading or something else. Maybe it's gossip. We just want to be in the know about what's happening and the latest of what's happening with whether it's our friends or celebrities. And again, how does this filling your mind with these things compare with how much we are filling our minds with things of God? What, what we know about God, what we know about Jesus, what we know about his eternal plan. How much time are we spending reading God's word, thinking about God's word, talking about it with one another? We need to set our minds on the things of God. And notice here, Paul says, for both our hearts and our minds, we must set our hearts and minds. It's an active word, an ongoing action of doing it. It's an ongoing command. And then from verse 5, Paul speaks about how our actions must be shaped by this identity. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what, is, what belongs to your earthly nature. Paul says that we must put to death. We must be ruthless with what is part of the old nature. It's, it's really, it's extreme language. Put to death. That should be our attitude towards our sin. Uh, you know, so, and that is so much in contrast with our default attitude of how close can we get. We should be putting to death, being ruthless with sin. It's not just give it a good try or 50% 50, 50 is a pass. I think many of you will have that as a motive for the year ahead. It is put to death, kill. The Bible commands us to go and murder, murder our sin. And similarly, in verse 8, we see uh, Paul says there, but now you must rid yourself of all such things. Rid yourself. Get rid of. Get it out. Don't uh, have it anywhere nearby. Lock it away. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Uh, there's a war on. And we need to be ruthlessly killing off these things that are part of our past nature. The Bible commands us to go to war against sin, to murder our sin. We are dead to sin, but we are not dead to temptation. And we must prepare ourselves for war. And we must go in guns blazing, ready to kill off 
our sin. Verse 5 requires drastic action, real repentance, fleeing temptation. It is fighting the inner evil desires of the heart. And then Paul gives two lists of things that we are to be putting to death. And I want us to just look through those lists. I've grouped them a little bit. Uh, Verse 5 and 6 I've grouped as the the inner evil of the heart. Just going to run through those and just give brief definitions. Firstly, we are to put to death sexual immorality. This is any uh, act aimed at sexual stimulation outside of marriage. We are to put to death impurity. That's improper relationships with one another. We are to put to death lust, uncontrolled passion, leading to sexual craving. It's interesting, the first three things um, he lists, they all have to do with sexual impurity. Any sexual desire outside of marriage needs to be put to death. In a group like this, uh, your age, that's a battle we fight. We need to be ruthless at fighting that battle. Next, we are to put to death evil desires. This is the picture of allowing evil thoughts to manifest in your mind, allowing them to take root, allowing them to play out in your mind and looking for ways to execute them. We are to put to death greed, wanting more and more, uh, never satisfied with what what we've got, not really caring for the needs of others, but just caring for ourselves, our own wants and desires. All this, Paul says, is idolatry. Idolatry is putting something in the place that only God deserves. We are to set our hearts and minds on him, on his plans, his purposes. Then the second grouping in verses 8 to 9. It's interesting to note in this grouping, let me just read them quickly. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Do you notice a common thread between all those things? It's all about relationships. We do not belong to the world anymore, but we still struggle uh, with uh, the fallenness of the world. So these things we need to be putting to death, putting off, getting rid of. Anger, that's the attitude of the heart uh, towards someone else because maybe because of what they've done to you. And maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they haven't done something you wanted them to do. Anger is so often driven by selfishness, by pride, by arrogance. Now there is a time uh, and a place for controlled righteous anger. But the anger here is talking about is the anger Uh, of not getting your way, being driven by your own selfishness. Secondly, rage. Now, this is the outworking of the anger. Uh, If anger is in the heart, rage is the action that flows out of anger. Thirdly, malice. Malice is 
plotting against someone, maliciously seeking to get back at them, uh, doing something to make sure that the other person, uh, that, that you get back at the other person, doing something to make sure that they, they see their own downfall. The fourth is slander. Slander is speaking badly about someone. Uh, but speaking badly about them with the desire to make them look bad, to make others like them less. You know, subtly dropping some things into conversations um, to make yourself look better and the other person look worse. If we are in Christ, then we are part of a new people. We're part of a new family. And our relationships must be transformed. So we need to be putting to death these things in our, that cause our relationships to go bad. God has made us into a new people. He's given us a new identity. Therefore, we need to ruthlessly kill sin, kill what is part of the old, our old worldly identity. Now, after um, telling us what to set our hearts and minds on and what we should be doing with sin, Paul looks to the things that we should be putting on that accords with our new identity. So finally here we see that we must be who we are. And I've grouped this into two groupings here. At the end of verse 12, there's five things listed there that uh, shows what we should be putting on. And these are things to do with, with our relationships to one another. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with each other and forgiving one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone else, forgive as the Lord forgave you. As I said, all these things, again, have a relational element to it. A part of the consequences of sin coming into this world is our relationships with one another have been damaged. They're not what they should be. They're not uh, what God had intended when he created the world. But as God's chosen people, as his new community, our relationships must be being transformed um, as we put on the new self. So again, let's run through these things briefly with a brief description of each. So firstly, compassion. We ought to be putting on compassion. Compassion is understanding, sympathizing with someone else in their situation, feeling what they feel, crying with them when they cry, supporting them in hardship, caring for them. Secondly, we ought to be putting on kindness. To be kind is to do something for someone with no expectation of any payback. It could be cooking a meal for a friend, helping someone move into their, their digs, looking after someone's children. I've got four if you want to practice. <laughs> Thirdly, it's humility. Arrogance and self-centeredness is such a classic human problem something that we all struggle with, whether we recognize it or not. Humility is thinking of yourself rightly, thinking of yourself from God's perspective. As C.S. Lewis, great um, 
Christian author famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Seeing ourselves uh, as sinners together in our relationship with God. Seeing everything good in us is only because of God working in us. As Christians, there is no room for arrogance. There's no room for boasting in any of our own achievements. It's not about you. It's about what God is doing in you. That's the fundamental element behind humility. Next is gentleness. Now, I couldn't actually think of a better description of gentleness other than being gentle. Um, but this is, this is a key aspect to living out the Christian life. I think maybe it's useful to think about the opposite of gentleness, and that's being harsh. Doing something that hurts someone, intentionally or unintentionally, whether it's because of purposed, harsh words used, or whether it's because of um, accidental, harsh words used. Gentleness is giving someone the benefit of the doubt, understanding their situation, understanding their struggles, and being gentle with them. Next is patience. This is a big one. Now, there's two things that come to mind when I think about patience and our struggles against patience. Firstly, when people do not do what you want them to do. Um, I take it most of you here aren't parents. Um, I'm a parent of four, as I mentioned. Martin's a parent, a few parents around. Um, parenting is a great way to test your patience. Many times, many times a day. Second struggle with patience is when people sin against us. It's so easy to get to the point of thinking, well, these people just keep messing up. I've had enough. I'm throwing in the towel. But we need to realize that we are sinners together. Uh, we will mess up. We will hurt one another because we continue to struggle with sin. Now, even, even when you get to the point of feeling like giving up on a relationship, we need to remind ourselves that we too are sinners with him and be patient with one another. Over the years, as I found it difficult to be patient with someone because of sin or something like that, I found it helpful to just spend some time really thinking about my own relationship with God. I think about how easily I mess up. But God is endlessly patient with me. I mess up far more before God than anyone else has to me. But God is patient in forgiving me. How much more should I be patient in forgiving those small offenses from someone else to me? As it says in verse 13, bear with um, each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance with someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Then the final uh, virtue we are to put on is love. Look at verse 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Uh, these things that we've looked at, these things that have been mentioned, these things we are to be putting on, 
are really a fleshing out, a defining of what true love is, what Christian love is. And it's not the love of Hollywood. It's a genuine concern for the other person. It's sacrificially thinking about other people before and above ourselves. We're all self-centered human beings, and it's so easy to just love ourselves. And even when we do things for others, to be motivated by how that makes us feel. Genuine love is looking to the other person, looking to what is their good, what is their ultimate good, and seeking to action that before thinking uh, about our own wants and desires. Uh, the next group of things that I want to look at, uh, the, the final group there, is things to do with God's words. And we pick it up in verse 16. Let the message of Christ or the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. There's a great picture there of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, what does it mean for God's word to dwell in you? Well, it's more than just reading the Bible and studying it. It's letting God's word live in you, thinking about it, meditating on it, letting it run through your minds, thinking about what it's saying, thinking about what it means, and how it should shape our passions, our desires, our actions, our thinking. Now, there's many practical ways in which we can make sure that God's word is dwelling in us. And from this passage, we see that one of them is singing. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, how this passage shapes how we should be thinking or why we should be singing. When we sing to one another in church, we're singing truth to one another in thankfulness to God. There's many other ways in which we can make sure that God's word is dwelling in us richly. Firstly, make sure you're familiar with it. You can't be thinking about something unless you're familiar with it, so read it. Spend regular time in God's word reading it, getting more and more familiar with it. But don't stop there. Keep reminding yourselves of it. There's many practical ways. Be creative in thinking about ways in which you can do it. Stick post-it notes all over your room that will remind you of the truths of Scripture. Set reminders on your phone to remind you of something you had read in the morning. And then talk about it with one another. Talk to others about what God has been challenging you on in his word. We are sinners. We are driven by sinful desires. We get lots of guidance and advice from other people, Christian or not, in the world. That's not good guidance or advice. God's word reorientates our purposes, our desires, our actions to be in line with his purposes, desires, and actions. If we ignore God's word, then we're just leaving things on a very surface level interaction. We are to be teaching and admonishing one another. We're part of one body that God has given us to one another to help build each other up. Uh, our culture's got a very individualistic focus, and that's the, affected the way we think about ourselves and Christianity. But as verse 16 says, let us teach and admonish one another. 
Just think about that for a moment. Maybe look around, look at others. You have a responsibility to be teaching and admonishing one another as part of a Christian community, as part of God's family. To teach, that's the positive. That's the imparting knowledge, understanding, seeing the implications of what God is saying to us through his word. Now, there's many different settings in which this can happen. As you have some iced tea after the service, um, great opportunity to talk about God's word together. Uh, in, in growth groups, and we mentioned them earlier, amazing opportunities to build deep relationships and teach each other from God's word. But there's many other settings, over coffee with a friend, at a bride, you know, even while you're doing sport together. Maybe if you're unfit, running isn't the best option. Um, you'll be panting rather than able to speak. But think about ways in which you can be teaching one another. And not just are we to teach, but we are also to admonish. What does admonish mean? Well, admonish means to correct or to rebuke, to tell people when they're going the wrong way. And this is to be done in love, done out of love. There's many times that we will feel awkward about challenging one another. Maybe we don't like it when we get admonished. I remember a friend years ago saying, it's a privilege for us to be able to rebuke each other. It's a way in which we love each other and protect each other from drifting away from God. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. As we admonish one another, we must do it in wisdom, knowing that we're dealing as one sinner to another. God has given us to one another to teach and admonish one another. God has brought us to be part of his family. We've been given new identities in that Christ died and we have died with him and he was risen and we have been risen with him. So we have this new life and we are to live out this new identity, setting our hearts and minds on this heavenly future, being ruthless with sin and putting on Christ-like, godly virtues. Let's pray. Let's pray that this, that this will be true for us in the year ahead. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in him he has brought us to be part of your family. Thank you for this new identity. Thank you for the great hope it brings of an eternity with you. Father, we pray that you'll help us to live out our lives in this world, setting our hearts on uh, the heavenly realities. We pray that you'll help us to be ruthless with sin and to be diligent in putting on godliness. We pray that you will grow us, that you will shape us, that you'll use us to strengthen and love one another. And we pray this for your honor and glory. Amen.